Andrew introduced me as John, I think, after the uh, kids' talk. Perhaps I should say I'm Preacher McDuck. Be much more like it. Oh, thanks, Rob. Let's pray. Father, your word is an absolute wonder of a treasure house, full of truths. So, Lord God, as we just open it up again today and consider it in this corporate fashion, pray, our Father, that uh, the things that we know in the past and have known for many times, that we'll just wonder anew at those again. And things, our Father, that you'd reveal to us today that, that are fresh, that, Lord, we might be amazed at who you are and what you've done for us. But Father, beyond just being amazed, may you continue to speak deeply to our hearts through your word, that you might transform us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be primarily focusing there on Galatians 3, so if you've got it uh, in your Bibles, let's uh, keep it open. When my grandmother died a few years ago, I'd been made the executor of her will. That meant I was legally responsible to ensure that all of her worldly assets were distributed exactly in accordance with her last will and testament. It wasn't a hard task. It was a simple will, a modest estate, nothing much. It should have been quite easy, but it became emotionally very hard when my cousin Bill learnt what he had inherited. You see, Bill had long lived a very alternate lifestyle. If I was the spiritual oddity in my non-believing family because I was a minister, then Bill was definitely the family black sheep. He was the irresponsible oddball. Picture, if you like, wild red hair. Picture, if you like, a, a, a has-been Woodstock hippie, 40 years past his prime. Picture an ageing drummer who was still trying to make a living in a CD band. And you've got a rough idea of Bill. And even when my granny was into her sweet doting 90s, there was no way she was going to entrust this unconventional grandson with anything but a token of her hard-earned assets. <clears throat> so while his sister inherited a nice tidy sum of money, when granny's will was read out, all that Bill was to receive was an old, <coughs> excuse me, was an old piano. Bill was devastated. He was livid. He was livid at the apparent injustice of Granny's will. And then at first with anger and then with tears, Bill began to beg in front of all of us as a family, he began to beg his sister to share her inheritance with him. His pleadings fell on very deaf ears. In her mind, she had already spent this unexpected windfall. No way was she going to part with any of this cash. Bill then turned his glare upon me. After all, I was the executor. I had some legal standing. Surely, surely Bill deserved more than a piano. Surely I could change the will. Surely I could correct this obvious injustice. Couldn't I just alter Granny's wishes? Couldn't I just set aside her, her last will and testament, even though it had been properly signed, witnessed and attested? Well, couldn't I do that, that simple thing? No. What Granny had written, Granny had written. It couldn't just be set aside 
and certainly couldn't be changed by the likes of me. And that's the same human argument that Paul uses as he scolds the Galatian Christians. Oh, thank you so much. As he scolds the Galatian Christians and rebukes their turning away from the pure gospel and turning back into the law of Moses. And why were they inclined to, to do that? Well, so that they could be, become so-called proper Christians, according to the, uh, the false teachers who were tickling their ears at this stage of their community. And Paul is really steamed up. It's hard sometimes out of a letter to get the tone, but the tone here is pretty plain. If you cast your eyes back to verse 1 of chapter 3, he starts off in verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians! It's a pretty strong statement. You foolish Galatians! And by verse 15, where Andrew started the reading, he's still in full flight. He's effectively saying to them, stop being a bunch of dopes. Even at a human level, a person's last will and testament is honoured. It's regarded as, as irreversible. No one can just come along and, and later change it. If that's the case in human life, how much more so then? is the promise, is the declared will of none other than God himself. It cannot be changed. God explicitly gave to Abraham, back there in Genesis 12, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then in Genesis 15, as we again read, God then pledged himself to this covenant, to this promise, sealing it as we continue through that passage, sealing it with a blood ceremony. So way back there to Abraham, God gave his word. God made a promise. God cut a covenant. He vowed. And that vow, that promise has now been fulfilled in Jesus, through whom the whole world is blessed. It is foolish, you Galatians. It is foolish to think that God's promise could somehow be reversed or altered by the law that was given centuries later. God promised to bless us. And by faith, Abraham believed the Lord. And it's written, it was credited to him as righteousness. And that is how we too are restored into a right relationship with God. Through faith, through believing, through trusting God, through relying on him and his promises. The law, the law which came much later, can never overturn the promises, can never supplant the promise, can never nullify the promise. It's not as if the promise was plan A, and when that failed, God said, oh, here's plan B. No, 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 my foolish Galatians, says Paul. What God has promised God has promised. And what God promises, God delivers. And he has delivered in the person, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, in the exaltation of his son, Jesus our Saviour. So let's just follow back through again in Galatians 3, from verse 15. Paul says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. 
The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law was introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. For the, if the inheritance depends on the promise, then it no longer depends on a Sorry, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in, this, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Particularly note verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. That a scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. The promise in Genesis 12, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Who is the you through whom everyone will be blessed? It is Jesus. It is the Christ. It is the man of Nazareth. It is the crucified risen one that you know through the gospel. When my dear old granny wrote her will, she knew exactly who she had in mind. It was going to be specifically Bill who would inherit the piano and his sister who would get all the cash. When God promised all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, God knew exactly who was to be the agent of blessing. It's not the Jewish nation who will bless the world. It's not the Israelites who are to grace us with their presence. It is not just any of Abraham's offspring. No, God had just one person in mind who would bring blessing to all peoples. And that one person, that one seed of Abraham, was Jesus. And Jesus does everything, everything it takes to bring this promise into reality. And we... We are but the grateful recipients. Jesus dies for the sin of the world and we from every tongue and tribe and nation, we receive forgiveness. All our sins cleansed. That is the promise. That is how we are blessed. And what have we done? What can we do to deserve forgiveness, to merit this blessing, to earn this grace? Nothing. Zippo. Zilch, zero. It comes to us by a word of promise, a word given before we were born, a word given before the law existed. Paul is saying, oh, my dear Galatians, my dear dopey friends, stop being duped by those who are so deluded as to imagine that they can improve upon the promises of God. Don't you realise that if you add anything to the gospel, you subtract from the gospel? If you add the law to the promise, then it's no longer the promise. If you've got to keep this rule or comply with that ritual to show God how good you are, then we are contributing to our salvation. We are becoming deserving of God's kindness. 
And that whole misguided notion destroys the very fabric of the promise of God. For mercy that is deserved is not mercy. A gift that is earned is not a gift. Grace that is merited is no longer grace at all. And once we supplant the promise of God, sorry, once we supplement the promise of God with any form of requirement from us, then we lose touch with the cross and we become instead reliant upon ourselves, on, on how good we are or, or how obedient we've been or on something we bring to the table. And that corrupts God's promise, which is attained by nothing that we do and nothing that we are. Look again at verse 18. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no long, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. And how did Abraham respond? Did Abraham go off when he heard that promise? Did he go off and, and do something to earn the promise? Did, he, did Abraham go and polish up his goodness and place it alongside God's promise? We can go back to verse 6 in chapter 3. We can go back to Galatians, uh, sorry, to, to Genesis 15. It says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's how we get right with God. That's the only way to come into a right relationship with God. You hear the promise of God and you hear that promise and it says, it says to you, this is too good to be true. This is too good to be true. That, that, that Jesus on the cross, he's done everything to forgive you of all of your sins. It just seems too good to be true. That you and I as, as dirty, rotten sinners, as those who've fouled up, as those who've you know, put our fingers up God's nose and said, we're going to go our own way. God just forgives us through Jesus. That's the promise. It's all too good to be true. And what are we to do in return? How do we take that promise on? The word of God says, you simply say thank you. You simply say, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand how that transaction can make me clean of all my sins, but God, I believe it. Thank you. And I accept your promise. And in Jesus, my sins are washed away. I don't understand how it is that I can be clothed with his righteousness. But I accept what you say is true. I rely on that. I don't deserve to be your child, but you've made me your child. Thank you, Father. Full stop, end of story, nothing more to add. I don't have to do anything to earn that forgiveness. I don't have to even be good enough or to measure up to some standard, or to prove myself worthy in some way. Think of the thief on the cross with Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be in paradise with me. The perfect example of what it means to have grace, to accept the promise of God, to believe and to be saved. Jesus has done it all for us on the cross. And I am blessed. You are blessed because of him. 
exactly as the promise of God to Abraham foretold. You and I, we're not in Galatia. We're not, we're not tempted, I don't, think, I don't think any of us here are tempted at the moment to, to go off and add to the gospel some old Jewish ritual like circumcision or abstaining from sweet and sour pork. That's, that's not what faces us today. We don't need to do that. That's not our temptation in order to be true blue Christians. We're not in the first century. But we do have our very own touchstones by which we sort of think that they evidence authentic spirituality, by which we feel that we're better Christians. You know, it's, it's easy to think this way about, about baptism. Hey, little baby over here. You guys, I'm sure, are thinking about baptism at some stage. It's going to come into your thinking orbit. And if you get to that point where, where you know, Stephen says, you know, oh, we ought to have a baptised because, you know, you know, she'll get to heaven then. It's not the way to think about it. It's a wrong way. I can remember way back in, uh, in Armadale when I was the minister up there, my first year in ministry, this couple rang me up. They wanted their little daughter baptised. And when I asked the, you know, the questions, they weren't part of the church. And this woman said to me, oh, well, we've got to have our daughter baptised. Christened, of course, was the expression they used. Yeah, we've got to have our daughter christened because then you know, if something bad happens to her and she dies when she's an infant, she'll still be able to be buried in the Presbyterian part of the cemetery. And I pushed her in front and said, and why is that important for you? And she said, well, because then if she's buried in consecrated ground, she'll be able to go to heaven. A great opportunity to unpack the gospel for this lady. But there was the thinking, adding to the gospel, having to be baptised, Lord's Supper. That's a good thing. But if you add that to the gospel and say, I'm now in God's good books because I took communion, that's not a good thing. Completely destroys the gospel. And so it is, you know, keeping the Ten Commandments. Is that, do we add that to the gospel to make ourselves better Christians? Or, you know, what does a proper Christian look like? Huh? Does a proper Christian smoke? Does a proper Christian not have tattoos? Does a proper Christian not have body piercings? You know, there's a whole lot of these little shibboleths that we put around in order to determine whether or not this person is a good Christian or not. Or whether we're going to be a better Christian if we, if we do this or don't do that. You know? 50 years ago, the touchstones for being a, a, a true Christian were Christians don't drink. Christians don't dance. And if you're in the southern end of America, in the Bible Belt there, Christians don't go to the movies. They were touchstones by which people regarded whether or not you were a true Christian. So whether we're in the first century or whether we're in the 21st century, the issue isn't the vice or the virtue of any of these specific activities. But the issue is, am I doing something? Or am I refraining and abstaining from something because there's a motivation in my heart that says that God will look upon me more favourably for heaven if I do this or don't do that? If that's the case, then Paul would say, you foolish cherry brookians, if you come to God holding out your own righteousness, showing to God your merits, just demonstrating to God, 
that you deserve his favour, then you're not trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. You're not believing the promise of God. You're not dependent upon the gospel. The cross is everything. Well, the cross is nothing. I'm going to let you into a little personal secret that I'm sure you already know. I find it hard to believe lots of truths about myself. I mean, to believe in such a way that my life is actually transformed and changed, to accept the truth about myself such that I do something about it. You know, in general conversation, you know, it, it's easy for me to sort of readily offer that, oh, yeah, I'm a bit overweight, you know. I'd be healthier if my BMI was, was, you know, a bit more balanced. But do I really believe it? Does it override the temptation for just one more dark chocolate Tim Tam? Do I regularly monitor my weight? Or do I sort of, I sort of know the scales are sitting underneath the bathroom vanity unit, but I'm never going to pull them out because it's an unwelcome intruder? I really don't want to know the truth. And that's what the law is. The law with a capital L, God's law. It's an intruder. God's law disturbs us. God's law confronts us with an unpleasant truth. It identifies our iniquity. But the law cannot remedy the problem. Now, the scales can tell me I'm overweight, but they can't remedy the excess baggage that I'm carrying. You know, it's easy for us to say we're all sinners. It's easy to us, for us to recite, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Ba-da, do-ba-da, that's right, yeah, you all know it. It's easy for us to piously quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's really easy for us all to chant in unison the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. But so often when I do that, do you know what's happening in me? I'm excusing myself. I'm doing the very opposite of confessing my sins. Because when I talk in terms generally and, you know, we all fall short, we're all sinners, forgive us our sins, you know what I do? I hide behind that smoke screen that because we're all sinners, then my sin doesn't really matter. Because I'm no worse than you. And therefore there's got to be a lower pass grade. Surely God will not judge us the way he says in his book his will. So at the very time I'm mouthing the truths of God's word, my heart is blunting its surgical edge that's designed to transform my life. And so the law, as Paul puts it here in Galatians 3, the law is there to work in harmony with the promise of God. From verse 21 in Galatians 3, we pick up this second section almost where he talks about the law. He says, you know, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? 
Absolutely not, if you're reading along. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might become justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What Paul's saying here is that both the law and the promise are of God. Both are good. The law, though, is different to the promise. The law can't impart life. That was never its intended purpose. That's not what it's designed for. Now, a hammer and a saw are both tools. They're both bought at a hardware shop. You can go up to Bunnings. Or if you're really quick, you can, you can go up to Masters and get them probably even cheaper. Both are used to fix things up. A hammer and a saw are both made of metal. But you do not want to confuse them. You don't want to mix up their purposes. You don't want to use a hammer when a saw should be used. And so Paul is saying, don't misuse the law to achieve the things that the promise alone is designed to deliver. So we've got to ask, what's the purpose then of the law? What is the law properly designed for? And I think Paul just outlines three things very quickly. He says, firstly, the law diagnoses disobedience. It lets us know when we don't measure up. It's like the scales. It tells me the truth about myself, even if I don't want to know about it. And so the law prevents us from using ignorance as an excuse for our wickedness. That's its first purpose. The second purpose is the law is a dungeon. Look at the words that Paul uses in verses 23 through to 25 about the law. He says, we were held prisoners by the law. We were locked up. The law was put in charge. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. Do you sort of get in your mind's eye the image that Paul's painting here? He's saying, it's as if you're in jail. The law is a prison guard. You're guilty. And the law is your armed escort. You can't escape. You're locked up. You're in custody. Prisoners are lawbreakers. Prisoners are forfeited their freedom. Prisoners are stripped of dignity. And prisoners wake condemnation. But that's where Paul's image diverges, surprisingly, from the standard. For the third purpose of the law is not to lead us to condemnation. But Paul says to us that the law's purpose is to direct us towards a different destiny. The law we've broken confines us in custodial care. But it isn't to inflict punishment. It isn't to seek retribution or revenge or even rehabilitation. We're not being led by the law to condemnation. Now the destiny for us, says Paul, with the law as our custodian, is to lead us to Christ. This is protective custody. 
The law is bringing us to the very one who alone can free us from the penalty and from the power of our sin. The law brings us to Jesus, to the seed of Abraham, who then blesses us with forgiveness, blesses us with the inheritance of heaven for all who believe. The law was our guardian. The law is there to bring us to faith in Jesus. So the law is designed to diagnose our disobedience. It's also designed to hold us, as it were, in a dungeon under the conviction of our sin in protective care to bring us to Jesus. This is a God who is rich in mercy. This is a God who desires us to live in union with him. And when we, in the pit of our own making, are acutely aware of, of our failings and our wrongs, when we tearfully and consciously acknowledge there's nothing good in us and we're painfully ashamed of who we are, when we're in that state, as the word of promises held out to us by God, and we see Jesus as our saviour and our redeemer, then we claim the gift of God by nothing more than faith, believing, yes, Jesus is my redeemer. He has paid the price for my sin. And we embrace the eternal life that he grants to us. And we are now free. We are no longer condemned. We are free. We are no longer under the law. We are free. We are co-heirs with Jesus of all the promises of God. The law and the promise, the promise and the law, they're all perfectly fulfilled for us in Jesus. There is a will and there is a way. The will was signed by God, covenanted way back, and the way been sent by Jesus, sent by God to us in Jesus, that we might trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you that so often we, we feel that we need to add stuff to your incredible promises to us. And it is so easy to think of ourselves as better than what we are, to compare ourselves to other people and think either we're no worse or that, yep, we're doing okay. But Father, help us to be convicted that that's just a wrong way of thinking about all that you've done for us. That we are simply sinners saved by grace. That we are saints because of what you have done for us that each of us have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And no matter whether we've been a Christian for, for 60 years or two years or three months or one day, we are all perfectly redeemed and stand perfectly righteous in Jesus. Father, help us to grasp that gospel in all its purity and simplicity. Help us to have eyes to see when we, we want to supplement it in some ways. And help us, our Father, to be, to be clear in our sharing of that gospel with others so that we don't put before them 
issues where they've got to comply with cultures or traditions or, or actions, but simply ask them to believe in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.